All right, I'm here with Chris Kelton. Um, he is a grad student in history at the University of Florida. He also writes for Mises Wire um, and had a podcast there, which you can still access if you if you go there. Um, Chris had an awesome, thank you for being here, by the way. Um, thank you for having me. Had a very interesting article. I, I particularly liked this, this piece because you know, there are a lot of calls right now to defund the police. And, um, you know, when you look at what they actually mean or what different people mean by that call, it can mean anything from reorganize the police to um, reprioritize, to bring in other agencies, to, you know, get a bunch more funding for causes that I want to yeah. want to want to have. Yeah, th that's my favorite. Defund the police translates to give them more money. Exactly. In some people's right, minds. right, right. Which you know in polit in politics speak that's not that unusual. Um, no. so you know, so so there's all that going on and I had been thinking, you know, I We've been saying we, I don't know if you call yourself an anarchist, you got the flag there. <laughs> it's not intentional, by the way, it just happens <laughs> to be across from my desk. But it's a good, it's a good visual. Yeah. Um, I don't call myself an anarchist most of the time, just because it means things to other people that it doesn't mean to mm -hmm. me. And then it's a whole conversation about, well, what are you talking about? What is, yeah. you know, um, but I and other um, ANCAPs, people people who believe in a truly free sure. society, um, have been saying for ages that a monopoly police system, you know, is going to result in violence, is going to result in poor service. It's, it's not, you know, it's like any other monopoly. You're not going to serve the people who you're supposed to be serving. So I've been thinking about writing something from this perspective because I hadn't seen anyone do it yet. And then I saw your article and I'm like, yeah. hey, I don't have to do that now. You already did it. Good. <laughs> so, um, so just tell me what, um, you know, the whole world is, is, you know, blowing up over this question now. And as, as we mentioned, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, they're saying defund the police. That's not actually what they mean. What if they did? What if, what if we were actually talking about eliminating the police? What would that look like? Sure. Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways that I think you can answer this. The first thing that I always mention in any time that I know if you get this as an anarchist who doesn't always call yourself an anarchist, same with me, uh, is you always have to, I think, head off the question of what would it look like if the government didn't, you know, produce this service or this product. Uh, and the way Murray Rothbard used to answer it, he's like, imagine if, you know, we had a, a government that produced shoes and like there were no private production of shoes. There was no, um, you know, Nike or anything like that. And then some, you know, some radical like you or me uh, came along and said, hey, you know, maybe we should privatize this and the government doesn't need to produce shoes. And the, the, the first thing you would get people say is, oh, well, how do you know how many of each size do you need? How do you know how many of each style do you need? How do you know what materials to use, right? Like, we don't know ever how things are going to look. And we have to, I think, acknowledge that, one, to keep expectations realistic, and two, uh, uh, because we can't burden ourselves with needing to give a convincing account of a world that does not yet fully exist, right? Because that's an impossible burden to place on us. Uh, and we have to keep that perspective in mind that part of the idea with a free society is that different people, entrepreneurs, and you know whoever has an idea can go out and put it to test in the market. And there will be this kind of natural selection process where consumers will vote with their dollars and the better ideas that service people's desires will mean. What that will look like, we can't know, just like nobody could have envisioned the internet before the first right. time somebody envisioned the internet, right? Um, but, but the distinction that I would make uh, when you ask, what would that look like? is, well, first off, it would look like security. And this is one of the things I was driving at in this article. And I actually wrote an article a while back on the Mises Wire that I linked to in it, um, that I make this point, uh, and it, you know, we can talk about it if you'd like, uh, with the connection between policing and the law and you know, what would the law look like without government? Because um, that's also, of course, a very big question. And what I always tell people is, well, let's start by making a distinction between a security service something that is there to protect 
person and property, keep people safe, protect their belongings, deter theft, things like that, and a law enforcement agency. Mm-hmm. And, and we tend to conflate the two, right? Mm-hmm. Because we tend to imagine the law as being things like don't murder, don't steal, don't set things on fire, you know, things that are violent crimes and property crimes. And if that's all the law were, then law enforcement would be functionally doing what security services did, at least in theory. But that's not the law we have, right? We have a plethora of victimless crimes. Um, that You know, there's this book, uh, A Crime a Day, Felony a Day, something like that. I forget the title of it now, but it just documents how we're all committing something like six felonies a day or six right. crimes a day, and we don't even know it, right? Because, um, you know, nobody knows all the statutes that are on the books. And it, it's it's so extensive that what you get is two things. One is you get police devoting a higher percentage of resources to enforcing victimless crime laws, right? Partly because they pay, you know, civ- uh, civil asset forfeiture and things like that. It's easy to get arrest statistics, and people associate that with murderers and robbers, but a lot of times it's some, you know, teenager who's smoking pot or something, you know, something like that that really doesn't involve anybody else, right? Um, And and you can also confiscate this property and get paid for it. Uh, Police precincts keep a percentage of confiscated property is actually once they instituted civil asset forfeiture, police departments started... um, approaching drug cases differently, for instance, instead of trying to stop people when they had the drugs, they tried to stop them when they had the money because they got to keep some of the money, right? And aren't aren't some of those departments now dependent on asset forfeiture money? Haven't they, hasn't it gotten to the point where that's actually, that's something they, they need just in order to operate because they've been, or do I have that wrong? uh, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. I haven't looked into specifically like the, the budgets of, different precincts, but I'd be shocked if that weren't the case, right? Because there is an incentive to, to bring this up. And then you build, um, you build your budget on this civil asset forfeiture. And if that includes one, not just expansion of their toys, right? Their, uh, their new armories and, you know, these, these tanks and, you know, LAPD with their helicopters, right? Um, some of that comes through other programs as well, but it's also, if you do that, uh, in, in a way that expands your, your staff, then there is a pressure to keep up that revenue stream. Um, and, and you have to think about this too, right? Because when you think of how, how do some people defend, look at Mark Cuban's defend of the post office. Don't privatize the post office because people's jobs depend on that. Right. And I always think of this mm. when people are talking about police right now, they, they will actually resort to keep this institution because it's effectively a jobs program. And you think, it, yeah, but what is this institution doing, right? Like nothing yeah. should be starker in this than the police. Uh, yeah. So what you're saying intuitively, I, I'd be shocked if, if you didn't find that, but I've never specifically looked into it. I don't want to speak yeah. out of turn. Yeah. Um, but I think going back to, you know, like the original point is you can make a distinction between law enforcement and then security where you do have private security services in existence now, right? So we don't have to completely imagine this. We, we can assume that it would look differently if you didn't have the police crowding them out or literally prohibiting these services in some cases. But we do have private security services um, already in existence. In fact, private security guards in this country outnumber public police officers. And when you think about that, you have to go, why? Right. Because if police are a security service, then that strikes me as an abysmal failure. Right. But if right. if if we recognize this trend, then we can very easily see maybe they are two different things and should be conceptualized in two different ways. Right. Now, let's let's say, however, it happened. Um, police were abolished overnight. Mm-hmm. What would a bunch of questions then come up? So you already have security services mm-hmm. in place. What would prevent private security forces from doing what police do now, which is, say, you know, deciding that uh, the drug trade is illegal and that they could then profit off of it by, you know, arresting people for voluntary transactions? What's to prevent private security forces from doing that kind of thing? Well, in theory, it is plausible that they would do that. But what you have to consider is who's paying them right? Who's mm-hmm. paying them to do that? And we, the taxpayers, pay the police, right? We know this. We, you know, this is one of the Democrat platitudes 
uh, and by dem lowercase d, like adjective, yeah. we live in a democratic society. Oh, we're paying for these public services, but we can't opt out, right? Like we right now, if we could, how many people would opt out of funding the police, right? Yeah. We can't do that. So they get paid anyway. So the question, if it's a voluntary customer, is would I be, there's a lot of people that are drug hawks, right? No, we can't decriminalize marijuana or we can't end the drug war or anything like that. No, heaven forbid. What if they actually had the option of withholding that money that they might need? How many people would then say, do mm -hmm. I really want to hand over this portion of my income to locking up some peaceful pothead? Right. And so there's a, there's a constraint there just by the ability for us to withdraw our tax dollars. And this is to think about, you know, in, in terms of socialism and capitalism, right? I always point out what you're doing in these things is you're socializing the cost of enforcing your morality, right? Like this is the drug hawks. They're right. okay with it because they're paying such a small percentage of it. But where that cost becomes distinct is the fact that when the people who disagree with them pull out and they still want to pay for those services, suddenly it becomes much more expensive. They want to do this through politics because through politics, they can socialize the cost of their agenda through the other unwilling taxpayers who would not choose to support that. And that's exactly what happens when you politicize anything. Yeah. So of course, it's especially true in things like victimless, victimless yeah. crimes. That's a, that's a great point. That's a really great point. Um, so you give a few examples actually in your, in your article. Um, my favorite, maybe you can talk about some of the others, but my favorite, because um, I've written about him before, is Dale Brown, um, Detroit mm -hmm. Threat Management. Um, so this is, this is he, he's got a security system that, or a security service that already can exist in this system. He's not doing anything outside of the law, um, and he's providing this service. Could you talk a little bit about what that, what that service does and how they're different from the police? Sure. Well, I, I'm not, I, I won't put myself as an expert on it. I don't, I'm not from Detroit. Um, but I did get a, actually a chance to talk to Dale Brown for about two hours oh, uh, awesome. a few years ago. Uh, in fact, it, you know, you might reach out to him because it was in a similar uh, yeah, thing I was doing to. back when Liberty.me was a thing. And he was just the nicest guy in the world. Um, I will say he disagrees with our philosophy. He I've seen that. Police. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but he's really like, he understands like libertarians tend to really like his organization. He said he's actually had libertarians come to work for him because they see this so that he, he recognizes the philosophical difference, but he's friendly to it. And he's just the nice. nicest guy in the world. Um, and uh, what they do is it's, I think it's a subscription service, if I remember correctly from my talk with him. And it's usually really catering like business owners, like they do have wealthy um I think wealthy people who contract with them, just like you have with other security firms, but it's a lot of times business owners. And what's, what's important about this is that this, this uh, uh, organization, Threat Management Center, was basically born out of the failure of the police. The police were failing um, even by you know, our standards of police failure and success. Uh, in Detroit, I give an example. I actually have a video on, uh, called Do We Need Police on YouTube? I'm not active on the YouTube channel either, but you can look it up. Uh, it's kind of the same arguments I made in the, the article, but there's one example I give in the video. of There was this guy uh, who murdered his uh, girlfriend with a hammer, and he felt guilty about it. I think he was a mentally handicapped guy, and he tried to go turn himself in to the Detroit police and like three different times, and they wouldn't book him. And so he eventually had to take a bus over to another city to turn himself in to get arrested for a murder that he was literally admitting to. Oh my now, God! That is a police <laughs> failure to the Instagram. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what what why they wouldn't do that. Other well, they're than too busy collecting. They're apathy. too busy collecting yeah. asset forfeiture goodies from exactly. It drug doesn't dealers. pay. I mean, yeah. that really is the yeah. only only reason that I can come to is it doesn't pay to do that, right? And so this guy go over to another city to do this. Wow. So Detroit <laughs> Threat Management, uh, it's called Threat Management Centers uh, or Center, uh, singular, I think. Um, they, they basically are there to offer profession, uh, protection and mostly deterrence, right? Because when you mm -hmm. have a private security agency, there's a greater inf in, uh, incentive to deter violent crime because violence right. is costly, right? Like if you have more violent interactions and more risky scenarios, you need higher salaries to, to attract, um, good workers and things like that. So there's a built-in incentive to deter violent and property crimes. Uh, and that's, that's really their goal. So they'll, you know, they do stuff kind of like what Brinks does, for instance, they, you know, guard assets being transferred across the, 
town or into a business or things like that. But they operate in like different communities, different neighborhoods. And one thing I really liked about it, and I mentioned this a little bit in the um, in the articles when I talked to him, um, he talked about the way people who don't pay him or can't afford to pay him benefit from the service. Mm-hmm. And this is really interesting because one of the arguments that economists will give against private like why we need a public police force is the free rider problem well people pay for it voluntarily some people will free ride on that and therefore it will be a service under provided or unprovided but del brown basically sees this in a in a system of uh this is where a for-profit industry can also be philanthropic because the free rider problem was basically a selling point for him the people who can pay me do and the people who can't pay me benefit and now this is interesting because if you read a uh, Mises is human action. He's got this point where he's talking about how medical doctors could price their services. And and he talks about how, well, you know, when you have doctors pricing it the way they want, they can price it higher for wealthier customers and lower for customers who have trouble paying. And this actually wasn't unlike the system of, uh, you know, medical uh the medical industry prior to the 1960s, right? Where doctors would often get free or reduced price care to people that, it was part of the culture, right? And so like these, we can, you know, I like economics, but we can easily over intellectualize the problem by just looking at um, like the, the superficial obvious incentives, like the free rider problem. And we don't get into the other incentive aspects like the public relations aspect of, um, the free rider can actually be a good way, a good thing because it right. helps it can market be an our asset, company. Not a problem. And, yeah, and the fact that you know people, human beings, aren't technically Homo economicus, right? There right. are like right. Del Brown clearly is individually, personally motivated by something more than just money. I mean, you can you yeah. can, I think, get that just from from talking yeah. to him or looking yeah. into his organization. Yeah, and yet he's found a way to provide that that's not dependent on donations that's you know that's actually you know financially viable um very successful yeah yeah and Um, and they have these community outreach programs that like protect uh domestic abuse victims right i saw that that. i mean it's it's just a wonderful and who's protesting them right detroit's been rioting since the 60s Right, but who's protesting Threat Management Center? They've been around since the 90s. Where where are the riots at their behaviors? Right, well, and that gets to sort of what I see as the central problem here, which is accountability. You know, when you look at policing as it is now, you know, they're part of the, the first, first of all, they're part of the monopoly state. So they have this, this monopoly position of enforcing law and sort of dictating who gets to, who gets to provide violence, who gets to engage in violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, they have qualified immunity. On top of that, there's, you know, there's sort of the corruption that springs from that monopoly. And so you've got judges, you know, listening to officers who who are, you know, in some cases clearly lying. I mean, this has been documented mm-hmm. and people inside the system have even said. So there's there's there are all these layers. There's the underlying mm-hmm. monopoly, there's the the immunity, there's the corruption. I don't think you can look at that system and say that it's accountable in any way. <clears throat> what, how important do you think that is? And, and how do you see the difference just in terms of, a, of real accountability between policing as we have it today and private alternatives? Well, you know, what I like to point out to people is, of course, if I say we should have private alternatives to the police, especially, you know, I'm in grad school, right? Like I'm surrounded by people that just Uh, can't, like they don't want to privatize. Oh, they'll, they'll call defund the police, but heaven forbid we privatize anything. Right. right. Um, And, you know, I always say, are you, are you more suspicious of a private organization running uh, this industry than the state running it? And the answer will always immediately be yes. And I said, well, that's the first step in showing why it will be held to a higher degree of accountability. We are more suspicious of it. People, mm. may, maybe not you and I, but most people are more suspicious and less trusting of a private entity than the state. I would love for people to be more more suspicious <laughs> of the government, right? Like, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but rea- realistically, they aren't. Yeah. But it's that suspicion is actually a good thing, right? There's more yeah. scrutiny on a private organization, right? So that, that I think, is the first step. You know you're going to be more accountable because people are worried about it, right? That's, right. Deg- that's a degree of accountability. But the other step is incentives matter, right? And so this is what you got to think about, the positive incentive to do bad things, civil asset forfeiture. It's like it's literally for-profit policing without it being privatized. 
um, in a way uh, that, you know, it's for profit. It's very much encouraged, um, both informally through the incentives and informally through like the quotas that focus on that because of the incentives, where even if an individual officer may not, you know, want to follow those incentives, they might be under pressure from their, their precinct to do so. Um, the negative incentives, like the incentives where we should be deterring behaviors that we aren't deterring, that's what qualified immunity is, right? So you know, I always think, you know, my soon-to-be brother-in-law is a police officer. He's a gem of a human being. He's the nicest guy in the world. And I can't, for the life of me, imagine him doing what a lot of these police officers do because he's just genuinely a good person. Somebody like that doesn't need deterrence from murdering somebody in cold blood, right? Mm -hmm. But some people do. And those people aren't being deterred. And so this is, we, we can't say, uh, you know, it's not like all the police are doing this. What we can say is because of these incentives, more of them are doing it than otherwise would be. That's right. what happens when right. you have the lack of accountability. The other one is uh, the police unions, right? Because, mm -hmm. and they, they're, accompanying this because they're the ones that pay for the lawyers. Like, you know, they book some victimless crime or frame somebody or something like that. They get a, a crappy public defender. Police unions hire these high priced lawyers that will sue and sue and sue until the person gets a pension. The person gets reinstated on the force. The person gets hired in another precinct in another district. Right. And, you know, we see the same thing in teachers unions, like public sector yeah. unions protect the bad at the expense of the good. And the problem is the people who who aren't guilty of these things, a lot of times they're not really cognizant of how much uh, you, like this stuff actually hurts them because it's protecting only the like the people you don't want to protect. Right. Right. The good right. cops, the you know, good <clears throat> cops, uh, they don't need they don't need this protection. They don't need qualified immunity. Right. So these things right. don't actually protect them, but it does give them a sense of security because they're usually a little bit deluded about this. And then the few cops who do speak out and try to do something about it. They, I, I was well, I posted a video on my Facebook the other day of a cop who made this video that went viral speaking about uh, speaking out against uh, police brutality and these incentives. Um, and he was asked to take it down or lose his job. He ended up losing his job. Like, okay, well, that's an incentive not to be a good cop. Right. Like, right, like right. you can't be in the system and at some point not be faced with this prospect of doing the right thing or keeping your job, right? Yeah. And so what do you do in that situation? I think most people, they think they'll do the right thing, but in practice, I think most of them keep their job. But the other one that, uh, you know, you kind of alluded to this is it's not just what's going on in the police system. So some of the articles I have on Mises Wire, I have one on like the tragedy of the commons in the courtroom, which is how prosecutors, police officers, judges, politicians all kind of tacitly work together. They're not di di directly com colluding. It's a game theory analysis, but it's how the incentives are structured for them to kind of accommodate each other at the expense of the, um, you know, the person on trial. Uh, because they're in these repeat interactions with each other. And the big one that I harp on a lot, and I have an article about this as well, is prosecutorial discretion. This one is huge. Not only because prosecutors have the discretion to prosecute somebody who may not deserve it and they choose to do so. They choose to plea bargain instead of going to trial when they know the person's innocent because, and you know, they use these shady tactics to do it because that's better for their record. Kamala Harris is an example of this. She makes me sick with all her, you know, you know, pro protester stuff. Like you, you know, like she's the biggest hypocrite on the planet with it. Right. But prosecutors also have the discretion to not press charges against cops. And because mm -hmm. they want to be on the good side of the cops, there's a strong incentive for them not to prosecute and not to press charges, or when they do, to prosecute, say, for civil charges, which means that they're protected by qualified immunity, versus criminal charges, which at least as of now, theoretically, is not protected by qualified immunity, though, with the pattern of the courts. And, you know, I, I don't trust that that'll remain the same if they can, if they start prosecuting under criminal charges. But prosecutors have a perverse incentive not to press charges against cops to hold them accountable because it hurts them. Uh, you know, it puts them in a problematic position as well. Um, so there's it's it's much more deeply embedded than just the problems with the police directly. It's embedded with the right. entire court system right. and prison system. Right. Right. And, and as you said, I mean. I'm going to link to all of your things as well, because I think the whole question of law and, you know, what is the law that's being enforced and who, who decides what that law is, you know, is that decided by a monopoly entity or is it, mm -hmm. you know, decided by, by 
you know, years of tradition or, or what. Um, but, you know, one thing that occurs to me is that with a, with a private defense, even in today's system where we have a lot of bad laws, you know, someone like Dale Brown can choose whether he's going to, you know, go after, you know, if he, if he's hired say to protect a, a block or an apartment building or something mm-hmm. and, you know, sees someone dealing drugs he has a choice if he wants to make a citizen's arrest of that person for dealing drugs or if he wants to ignore them or if he wants to say, go up to them and say, hey, this might not be the place you want to do that. You know, you always have a choice. And, and, you know, as with your example with the police who chose to ignore the guy coming in and confessing, confessing to the murder, you know, they have a choice as to what they're going to go after too. So um, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, even even with bad laws, um, <clears throat> there's still the question of which laws are you incentivized, which which laws does which system incentivize you to enforce? Um, and it seems that there's a big difference between the two models. Yeah, and this is this is I, I mentioned prosecutorial discretion, but it's also police officer discretion, where mm-hmm. you know the incentives are to enforce laws that pay rather than laws that protect, right? right? So drug laws, busting people who have the cash rather than the drugs, which means they're getting the cash off the streets, but the drugs are staying on the streets, you know, like, um, it, it obviously prosecute, or I'm sorry, officer, the, the, uh, the discretion of an arresting officer is, is very substantial in this equation as well. And this is where I, I, a lot of times get pushback from a lot of people that I'm usually like minded with, um, especially from like conservative leaning libertarians is I do actually think institutionalized racism is a real thing. I have a, a Mises article about this saying, Hey mm. guys, this is, this is not just a, a buzz, a buzzword or a platitude. And, and you know how I describe it is when you look, I'm an historian, right? If you look back in history, I don't think anybody can reasonably deny that racism isn't an important explanatory factor for a lot of our history, right? Yeah. Like how do you explain Jim Crow, the Jim right. Crow South without, right understanding racial ideology, right? is very, very important. Well, that's when a lot of this stuff was put into place. There's uh, a great deal of historiography, one of my professors, in fact, um, who focuses uh, on mass incarceration by looking at the period in like the 1920s and 30s, where you had the first spike in incarceration, the first like tough on crime movement. And then it kind of dipped back down after that and stayed level for a while. And then you had a huge spike up in the 70s, where it was like this hockey stick. And and that's what people focus on. But the reason people are focusing on the 1930s is because that's when they laid a lot of groundwork, a lot of institutional groundwork, the infrastructure for this, you know, the FBI, um, federal penitentiaries, as well as federal funding for state penitentiaries and state police departments, right? Like a lot of this is the federal, what Joe Biden currently wants to do in his USA Today op-ed is the federal government giving strings attached budgets to police precincts to then get them to follow certain policies. This was used in the drug war to get to, this is actually why we, Joe Biden, again, actually is the person who did this. The civil asset forfeiture was a federal government program to incentivize local police departments to uh, enforce the, the, uh, the war on drugs, right? right, In the seventies and eighties. Uh, and they did it by saying, hey, you'll get to keep like 80% of what you seize from people. Um, uh, so a lot of this institutional groundwork was done in a period in which racism was very much at its height, right? The uh, Birth of a Nation yeah. came out in the 19-teens. We had the new Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. Very, very racially charged era. And this was directly and openly, explicitly connected to increases in the prison system and the police state. Right. So they're laying that institutional framework. We get this again in the 70s. We kind of already knew this about Nixon, but not too long ago, one of his aides came out and said, yeah, his drug war was a way to target hippies, communists and African-Americans. Right. You know, that to be true. Right. And so they're putting these these frameworks in place. And what they do is they create a system where through this policing, people get shuffled in and out of the prison system and it just cycles out. A book that I've been recommending to everybody is Alice Goffman's on the Run, which is basically just about policing in the inner city. It's basically a, an ethnography. It's very fascinating. It's very disturbing. Um, and so what I always say to people is race, racism did motivate a lot of these policies, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the ramping up of police, the ramping up of 
prisons. Um, but racism culturally has obviously improved over time, right? Barack yeah. Obama, first black president. Through most metrics, racism has improved. Unlike the 1920s, people aren't selling postcards of mutilated black men that you're like, sorry, you missed the lynching. That right. literally happened in the no, 1920s yeah, I know. repeatedly, yeah. right? That yeah. doesn't happen anymore. So it's hard yeah. to say by most metrics that racism has gone down. Yet people like to tout African-Americans are disproportionately represented in the prison system, but that's not really the interesting story. What's interesting is they're disproportionately rep represented by a larger degree than they were back then, right? And this wow. is, you know, this wow. is what I study. So that has actually increased. Now that's interesting. That's, right? I, I, I would think, love to see numbers on that. Do you, is there a paper or something where you can, that you can, that I can link uh, to? So a lot of this is something that that I've done um, on my own because I work on like Jim Crow South, um, like the uh, uh, convict leasing and whatnot. Um, there is one book, only one academic book that I think has has actually stated this explicitly because everybody else just focuses on African Americans are disproportionately represented. They don't they don't think it's significant that it, it is increasingly so. But the book Texas Tough which there's, you know, I have little disagreements with the guy, but overall it's a wonderful book. He's the only guy I know of that's actually explicitly noted that as a significant trend. Wow, um, I mean, that's huge. Yeah, it's huge, right? But see, the reason most, most people on the left don't think of it is because, well, yeah, you know, it's disproportionately uh, represented. But the fact that that's actually increased over time is, as, is much as more societal racism, racist, As societal racist attitudes are decreasing, that's increasing. Exactly. That's crazy. Exactly. And so what I tell people, and this is how I think of institutional racism, you have to, discretion of police officers, I think sometimes it, it is very much racially motivated. There was an LA cop quoted as saying, racial profiling, oh, it's a fiction, but it's a useful fiction, meaning, <laughs> well, we're still going to do it, right? But but I tell people also, you know, on the, on the other side of the aisle is, how do you explain black cop participation in this? How do you explain the white victims that, that are a part of this? How do you explain... Um, there's a book called um, Locking Up Our Own about African-American support of increases in policing, right? How do you explain all of this? And this is an historical mystery as well. It, and I think a lot of this is the fact that it's become institutionalized in a way where it keeps perpetuating these results through mostly inner cities, right? Which are, of course, disproportionately Black and Hispanic. Uh, but it And that was by design too. I, at the time, yeah. Like, you know, that was, or at least it was, a lot of it was racially driven, right? But I don't think it's as much so today. So what I always tell people is if you had Thanos' gauntlet, you could snap your fingers, end racism tomorrow, but everything else stays the same. Even though nothing was ever racially motivated, you'd still see a perpetuation of this problem. And that's important for, you know, my friends on the left who want to defund the police and think that curing racism and getting white people to right. kneel and apologize for their whiteness gonna is what's going to do it. And that's not going to do it. Yeah. Right. You cure yeah. racism. Wonderful. That's a good thing. It isn't going to change the system at all because it has been institutionalized. So I think yeah. institutionalized racism is a real thing. But I like to, to focus on the institutional aspects because a lot of the people on the left shouting defund the police, they're not thinking institutionally. They're not thinking about these actual legal systems that are put into place. They're not thinking about these incentive structures. Some of them are. Some of them are. But a lot of them aren't. They're just seeing this as fully racism, and once racism ends, all this stuff ends. And that's obviously not going to be the case. Right. So what's your explanation or, or um, explanations when you talk about the institutional um, factors in this? Looking at this, this trend of an increasing proportion of African Americans as the prison population, What's, what are the institutional factors that account for that specifically? If you were trying to explain to somebody why it is that that's getting worse, what are, what are the specific institutional things that you think of? I, well, so I think it's um, yeah, urban policing, broken window policing is the reason why it is. Uh, and this is another one that I'm, I'm glad you, you asked this question because I haven't brought it up. You hadn't brought it up, but I think it's important to talk about. Broken window policing is exactly why I think that this doesn't have to be racially motivated to carry out the the racial i like the racial ideologues goals in instituting these ideas right um because uh broken window policing is this theory that oh well you catch more crimes right they they, they want to get arrests because then they look like they're doing their jobs if you police you know areas with broken windows and there's some truth to this right like in the sense that from the police's perspective 
you go to high crime areas, you're going to arrest more people. But what this plays out in practice is not that they're arresting people that are committing violent and property, property crimes. It's that they're policing everybody. Um, so like one example of this that I, that, you know, again, I, I can't recommend enough the book on the run. Um, I, I j actually just read it last week and I've been recommending it to everybody since, cause it's a very powerful book. Um, and it's, even though I'm sure the person is very far, far on the progressive left, it's not a polemical book at all. Um, it's very just straightforward. And she gives this example. This is, this is a woman. Um, she was actually getting her PhD at Princeton and she started this while she was an undergraduate at UPenn. Uh, generally upper middle class white girl. And when she was 20, she started tutoring this young African-American girl in inner city, West Philadelphia in a black neighborhood. And she got an apartment there and ended up living next to them and, you know, basically developing a relationship with these people. Um, and she just kind of documented her experience living there for six years and she wrote about it, right? So these are just personal accounts. They just involve a few people, but it kind of shows how police incentives and police practices have this, uh, you know, constraining effect. And one of the examples she gives is one of her friends, she uses pseudonyms, but one of her friends named, she calls him Chuck, and his younger 11-year-old brother, Tim, we're in a car. Chuck was driving him to like, I think sports, some sports practice or something like that. I don't even remember. Um, and he gets pulled over by the police officer and, and police, you know, they go, go around in these areas and they're bored and they'll literally just run license plates. And while the car was picked up as stolen, like it was reported stolen in California. Now they're in West, West Philadelphia. Chuck hadn't been to California, right? Like that's plausible enough. But he borrowed the car from his girlfriend because of some previous issue he had with legal entanglements. Um, and he didn't have a car. Um, so he borrowed the car from his girlfriend. Well, the girlfriend, it was actually her, un her uncle bought it and he bought it from like some, you know, somebody else, right? So it's like nobody connected to this had stolen it. And this is actually reasonably traceable um, activity. So obviously like right. but they charged him with, acceptance of stolen property, right? Which is one of those things, ignorance of the law isn't a defense. And this is one of the reasons why that's a stupid and horrible thing to think, right? Yeah. Because people, not only is it ignorance of the law, but it's ignorance that like what I, you know, like him borrowing that car was even stolen property, right? He right. didn't know that, um, but he was charged. But the thing that really stuck out at me is the 11 year old brother was also charged and was sent to juvie for three years. <gasps> Wow. And then, so this this starts this cycle at a very wow. young age. And it just comes from uh, this broken window policing where we're going to have a heavier police presence in what amounts to be poor inner city neighborhoods. Yeah. And poor inner city neighborhoods tend to be disproportionately black and Hispanic. And a lot of that is because of historical racism that yeah. circumscribed them in this area. Uh, she also, in the last chapter, she had a very important part where the grandfather of the young woman she was tutoring uh, he had no criminal record, right? And he moved into this neighborhood when he was, like, it was part of upward mobility right mm. before white flight in the 1950s and white families moved out in, into suburbia. Uh, so for him, him moving into this apartment that he had was upward mobility and, you know, black people kind of moving up in the world when racism was on the decline. But before you had the war on poverty and the war on crime under LBJ and then the war on drugs and more war on crime under Nixon and Reagan, Right. And so uh, what you had hap happened was this deterioration of the neighborhood and then the police presence imposed inside it. And I think what it illustrates is uh, something I, I say um, I've said elsewhere is the incentive of police. In fact, Jeff Deist has a comment on my article. I don't know if you've read it. It's just a, a comment on my article that says exactly this. And I completely agree with Jeff, as I often do, uh, is the, the police policing is a verb. And what they do, what they essentially exist to do is to antagonize and escalate situations. And that's exactly what it is. So it's not that none of these people ever would have committed crime without this or anything, but it's that the police are actually exacerbating that. So right. we tend to think of it the other way around because there's so much crime in the area. That's why there's so much police. But when you actually look at the processes, like charging this 11 year old kid for Jesus. getting a ride to practice yeah. uh, in a, in a stolen car that nobody in the car even knew had been stolen because it'd been, you know, resold and all this, right. Uh, that, that what they're actually doing is increasing the crime in this area. Yeah. She also yeah. talks in this book about 
Um, like some of the ways where once you're in these legal entanglements, you can't go to the police. And so then where you do have crime, they have to protect themselves. So this is where conservative uh, pro-gun people should listen up, right? Because this is what I don't hear from them. Is so then you have a lot of people starting to to carry guns to protect themselves because they can't go to the police when they get robbed or something like that. So they have to take their own means of defense, something that conservatives should champion. And then they get booked because they're carrying an unlicensed firearm and all the NRA people do. Why didn't they have a license? Right. And of course they can't get a license. Right. In these right, areas. right. Right. So it just creates the cycle of entanglement that yeah. I think is probably, in fact, one of the stories she gives involves a black cop. Right. <laughs> and so I think it is decreasingly, racially motivated, but it does have historical racist roots that then through that once it's institutionalized, once it's put into play, it just basically cycles across generations continually. Right. And this is really hard for a lot of people in our position to see, right? Because I didn't grow up in, in yeah. inner city anywhere, right? And a lot of us don't have those experiences. We're not daily confronted with the heavy-handed policing that people in inner city Philadelphia, Chicago, LA, whatever, are faced with. Um, and so we just don't have the perspective. Yeah. And I think that's an important part of it as well. Yeah, it really, um, it reminds me of the Stanford prison experiment where, you know, you throw random people, not not good or bad or any or violent or criminal or anything, just random people together, you assign them roles of prison guard mm -hmm. and prisoner. And very quickly, you see the conflict escalating and becoming violent and un untenable. And it just, it seems like what you're talking about, this, the broken window policing, this, this, you know, sort of focusing on neighborhoods and the, the more you bring police in, you're kind of reenacting that experiment and creating yeah. all the conflict that goes with it. And I'll build on that if, if you don't mind. Is the yeah, Milgram yeah. experiment is a great example, but most people, they, they, they know what you described, but the experiment shows something in a little bit more detail that I think is interesting to focus on is they basically, after the experiment, were able to categorize people into three groups, roughly a third of, so what they did was they made, um, it was just like a vo volunteer experiments and they gave some people the role of the prisoner and some people the role of the prison guard. And uh, about a third of the people in the role of the prison guard uh, were basically sadists. They enjoyed their, you know, they're on a power trip, right? It's not financially motivated, which is another component of this. We talked about the monetary incentives of things like civil asset forfeiture, but there's also, I think, the power trip incentive, the psychological aspect. And this is what they're kind of seeing with a third of them who are just cruel because they're in a position to be cruel. About a third were rule followers. They were neither cruel nor generous. Um, they were just, I'm going to follow the rules, right? So it's standard rule following morality. And then about a third of the people were actually very kind and were, you know, a little bit more generous to people. And, and this is also important when we think about the police, because there are a lot of people that point to some nice cop or some good cop, and they, but they're, they're that third, right? The natural population, according to this experiment, roughly is one third of it is that. But then we have to think, the interesting one is that middle area, uh, the, the rule followers. So there was this book I, I read for uh, the, the class I was helping teach last semester, which was the history of the Holocaust. And we read this wonderful book. It's another disturbing, hard to read book, but it's called Into That Darkness. Uh, and it's about the head of Treblinka, the, the most um, notorious, uh, Nazi death camp, uh, where, where about 800,000 uh, Jews were killed by the Nazis. Polish Jews were killed by the Nazis. This is before Auschwitz was, uh, you know, earning its infamy. Um, and he's, he's kind of presenting himself. It's, he's being interviewed, but the author is basically writing the book through his interviews. And he's presenting himself as like this nice person. And I asked the class, um, you know, I told them about this Milgram's experiment. I said, which category do you think he's in? And most of them said, you know, reading between the lines, he's trying to present himself as the charitable group. But what he really was, was probably the rule follower. Now, I mean, this is hard to say, right? Because we, you know, we can't know what was in his head fully at the time. But most of the class was like, he was probably a rule follower. And this is important to think about, because then you think even the cops that say, I follow the rules, I do what I'm told. What rules are you following? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what you have to confront, right? The bad cops are obvious enough, but this is where, again, the conservatives will be like, yes, some cops are bad. They should be held accountable. There should be more accountable. But from our perspective with the law, 
what about the rule followers? What about the people that aren't going to step outside of their role and do anything worse? They're the ones doing what I was describing in that broken window policing. A lot of those guys are rule followers, but they're still carrying out a lot of these problems and creating this institution. And that I think is important with the Milgram's experiment is the sadists, which is what everybody thinks of. They're, they're important. But the more interesting one, I think, is that middle group of the, the rule followers in that, yeah. that we have to be, you know, what, again, because I use the Holocaust example, uh, what Hannah called the, the banality of e- evil, right? right? The people that right. elsewhere would just be, you know, selling used cars or something, but they get into this role and they end up, you know, policing, uh, arresting 11-year-olds for having a ride to a sports game or whatever. Right. The other thing that I think um, maybe a lot of a lot of people who aren't seeing it firsthand don't really recognize is what you describe. Um, it, I don't think there's any way of describing it other than creating a, a second class of citizens. The the whole sort of school to prison thing. The, mm-hmm. the example of the 11 year old being arrested and sent and sent to juvenile hall. It's really it's like once you get in that system you're in a different class, whatever your color, your race, everything, you're now in a different class of citizens, mm-hmm. you have different rights. Um, do you, would you agree with that assessment? This is actually something that historians have paid more attention to is uh, the concept of citizenship um, mm-hmm. is, you know, it's fashionable in histories. We think about what rights we have and political activities and, uh, you know, some of it I, I roll my eyes at in the history, but the concept of citizenship is kind of based on that idea is um, the, the, the legal rights that are attached to your existence constitute your citizenship, right? Like if you're not an American citizen, um, you may not have to pay taxes, but you also can't vote kind of like that's the idea, um, right? Yeah. So what about somebody who's an ex-con, right? And this is where I, I don't vote. I, I don't think anybody should vote. Um, but you know, people have, why, why do we let fill-ins vote? Well, I mean, if the idea is they've, they've served their time, why shouldn't they, right? Aren't they Mm -hmm. citizens, right? Or the, um, you know, once you get out of, of prison, it's, you actually have to put in that you're a convicted felon, um, and maybe that's justifiable, but you know that that's going to make it harder to get a job. And then people say, well, why don't they get a job? Right. And so the point is like, you are, what you're saying is absolutely true is you are creating barriers to them that do actually hold regardless of race, right? It's not just a black-white thing uh, at that point. It, it is true. You know, my, my dad's cousin uh, is serving life in prison for selling crack in L.A. My dad grew up in, in L.A., in Los Angeles, in, like, East Hollywood or something. He was very, very poor growing up. And, uh, like, that's one of the few times I saw my dad cry is when he heard yes. him. I never even met his cousin. But that, like, is when, you know, and obviously it's a white guy. I have a white family, right? So... And that's another part of the racism doesn't explain all of it, but he got convicted under the third three strikes law. You know, it wasn't any, it was, it was a different um, set of standards that were imposed on him. And then when you look at what happens between those terms, and I don't know specifically his case, because again, I never met the guy, but in a lot of these cases, it's and this, again, I'll go back to that book on the run, because it's just so, so useful for this. And it's fresh in my mind is uh, they talk about how people wouldn't hold down jobs because if they're on probation or they're on parole, like these minor infractions, like they have curfews, everything, like there's these, it's almost impossible to not violate your terms of parole. Um, And so what would happen is they get these minor infractions and then once they have them, they have a bench warrant out for them. They got to go to jail for three more years and start this whole process over. And the police will come to the school and look for them. They'll come to hospitals and look for them and they'll come to jobs and look for them and they'll arrest them there. So it makes the, like, you know, you talk about, oh, you know, why don't, Thomas Sowell talks about why um, uh, the black father is less common today than it was in the 1950s. This is why, right? She talks about people like don't want to go to, to, student teacher meetings because they're worried the cops will look for them there. Or she opens the book with people who are reluctant to go to the hospital to get treatment for something because they're worried the police will look for them there. And it's because of some minor, not, not a violent crime, right? but a, right. a minor parole infraction. They were late coming home from curfew or something like that, right? Something absolutely absurd. And yeah. so this is at, at the end of the day, what um, Michelle Alexander was trying to get to with new, the new Jim Crow. Most people's takeaway from that book is African-Americans are disproportionately represented, right? But everybody, at least in the scholarly world, already knew that. That wasn't new, 
right? But what she was arguing was that once you get out of prison, it ain't over, yeah. right? You do have yeah. through parole, pr- probation, and just the ex-con status, even if you, you make it out of parole, they have this constraining, controlling, I mean, even um, court yeah. fees, for instance, one of the, the major reasons for these parole violations is they don't have the money to pay all their court fees and their probation fees, right? You're imposing fees on people that you had locked up and couldn't work an income, and you're doing that to everybody in their community. So the financial support that surrounds it, it's like, of course they're like, so of course they violating and then they can't get a job. So they go to sell drugs because that's the only way they can earn right. income. Right. right. And so you're forcing, and then, you know, you have people going, well, why don't they just not commit crimes? And why don't they just do what the law says? And it's like, you're literally making this impossible for them yeah. and in making it harder for them to, to not be, like even the ones that do commit violent crimes, I think you you can't abandon individual agency, but you also can't put people in a situation where they have virtually no other options because of legal impositions and then be appalled at the results. Right. You know, like, why don't they just follow the law? It really isn't that simple under this system. Right. Or when I, we've got to, we've got to wrap up. We've gone way over, but sure, this sure, has been yeah. fantastic. I'm, so gonna I'm a have talker. To, I'm sorry. I am going to have to have you back on because you're a wealth of information here. And this is stuff that needs to get out because I think you're right. People don't, people on all different sides of, of, of the issue, there are, there are pieces that people really aren't getting. And I feel like this is a huge opportunity to have this conversation about the nature of police, what it, what it actually means as opposed to our fantasies of, you know, what it's supposed to mean and what it yeah, means. Andy for, Griffith show. Kind right. Of right. Or, or what maybe it means in some communities, you know, I live in a not wealthy, but I live in a pretty decent, you know, mm-hmm. middle-class community it's a small, small-ish city for the LA area. Yeah. We've got, I would say our police are pretty decent compared to LAPD yeah. and bigger places. But so rural areas tend to be better than urban areas. Interesting. Well. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. And so if that's your experience, you know, I can see how, you know, some people think that police are one thing, but mm-hmm. living in a different, a different city, a different part of the city, police are a completely different completely thing different and it's a thing. different world and people just need to understand that. Um, yeah. People in suburban Philadelphia see the police through their experience as somebody they call on when they need, right. which if we're going to have police, I think that would be, you know, have it be like firemen. Don't go out patrolling for fires, put them out when right. you get calls. Right. That's what it is for people in suburban Philadelphia, but these black neighborhoods in West Philadelphia that I've been citing examples from, they see the police as an ever-present entity that is constantly on the prowl for any little infraction. Because like predators. They inform, they, that's exact, they literally are, because they have informal arrest quotas. Arrest quotas are illegal, so a lot mm-hmm. of people deny their existence, but the fact of informal arrest co- quotas are well-documented, um, they absolutely do take place. And so it's a very different experience between, I mean, it's the difference between a police state and a police service, and depending on, you know, just the geographical area, um, you have a very different experience. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I I really am going to have to have you back on again. Um, I'm happy to come on anytime. This was a fun conversation. I'm sorry I talked so long. No, this is fantastic. This has been really, really great. Um, Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yep.